0: All right, let's begin with a word of prayer and then we'll get down to business. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for all the ways you bless us in body and soul, especially for the blessing of your Son, who through his cross and suffering brought us life and salvation. We pray that you would lead us this morning as we study uh, your word and your witness in the world. We pray that you would give us hearts open to receive the gifts of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in your son's most holy name, Amen. Amen. All right. So, I uh, what did you talk about last week? Let's just get this out of the way. Heaven. heaven. Yeah. Oh, was it a heavenly discussion, or was you were talked about heaven? That was a okay. really bad joke. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we never got to the okay. That's what he gave you. We never okay. Got to okay. He didn't give me anything, so that's great. We're we're I'm, I'm a blank slate. You can. So um, how did now? Tell me. Refer me to the book here. How did you talk about heaven in reference to the book? Or was there not not a connection there? Was it just the discussion went that way? I think with Eternity, we talked about purgatory. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Very good. Saints. Perfect. Fantastic. Okay. So, um, I don't have much of an outline on the sheet for you today. And I'll tell you exactly why that is. It's because, as Ellen Pointed out so helpfully this morning, there is something significantly lacking in my education, which is that I can't read your minds. Um, so I don't, and, and I had, I was presented with this question all week long as I was preparing. I just don't know what you, how, how these section, how these chapters struck you, and I can't. It's hard for me to imagine. And so um, that, I w- in, in terms of that, it, for that reason, I wanted to leave the, the outline a little bit looser and let, and try and let you guys guide the discussion a little bit more. If that fails. If you, don't, if you don't want to guide the discussion or you don't have anything, uh, if, 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 if we run out of things to say, I have lots of other things to say that pertain to the chapter. But I wanted to start by giving you guys a chance to sort of get us into this. So the first question, um, as always, is uh, let's, let's review the narrative. Let's review what the, what the story is about here. So we had chapters 24 through tw- tw- 26. Right, pages 156 to 175. So, what are the highlights of this section? What happened in these chapters? Barbara. I
1: found it
0: very really interesting because to me it was like this could be three separate Bible studies. It could be, <laughs> yes. Fortune was the first one, suffering was the second yeah. one, and then the end one when you know, she was going to become part of the church. Right it was like, you know, they're so free completely. Yep. That's right. I think it's a brilliant way of writing because what she's always doing is she, she presents an idea at one point in a certain context, and then it always comes up again later in another context. It, it, she's really, she's got this great sort of circular way of bringing us to, bringing us along with her. But the result is, in terms of Bible study, there's not one unifying idea going on here. That's very true. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, What else? What else is going on here? What? Yeah, Yeah, Kathy. I was
1: particularly struck by, you know, it was the last chapter, I think, um, or her thought process was so, I don't know, it was articulated so well in terms of her position on women's right to choose. Right. And how she, you know, wanted to blame the church and then, you know, came full circle to realize,
0: you
1: know, reality is god's or the the the, the, Pope, the right. Pope's position how that had kind of his prophecy came
0: to life. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is one of the things that I, this is what I wrote down on the page. These are the things that that particularly struck me. So, in the same way I was I was it was notable and of course she has the the benefit of hindsight. So, when she and I always want to imagine that this is exactly how it happened at the time, but she's she's reflecting on it. Um, but the way that she describes um, the, com- the combat between her emotions and her intellect, between her passions and her will, um, is—it's a, a very apt description of the trouble that we run into with original sin. Okay, so let's hang on to that. I have a lot of things I can say about that in a video I want to show you if we have time. Um, but that's—that's that's an excellent thing to talk about. Okay, so go ahead, Kathy.
1: And, and I think. If Right. What unfolded in, in, in one paragraph to me it was just really Absolutely. articulated so well.
0: Yeah, yep. I think she I, I think she a phenomenal writer. I really I'm I'm more and more impressed the more we go along here, yeah. Carol. I, I also don't know what other people's minds are thinking <laughs> Well then we're hey, we're in the same boat here. Okay, perfect. <laughs>
1: Yes. paragraph. I mean, again, she, she's, she's thinking through her, her struggle. Mm-hmm. Oh, what's the problem? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. What I'm really saying is I am better than God. Right.
0: And when I'm reading that, I'm thinking, wait a minute,
2: this is an atheist. Yeah. She's not anymore. She's still struggling. Right. But but that belief. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. You know what it reminded me of? And it's related in some ways, um, particularly in what she says about going against, opposing God. It reminded me, I don't know if you know the story in Acts. Um, So Paul had a teacher. A rabbi named Gamaliel, um, and there was a time when I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Peter um, was in prison, and um, the and the Sanhedrin is going to, you know, the, the, or, it's either the Sanhedrin or the Romans. I'm getting the facts all mixed up. I'll get it. I'll get to the point though, and then it'll be clear. Um, they're going to they're going to they're going to punish the the apostles. And Gamaliel stands up and says to them look, this has happened before. People have, people have arisen claiming to be the Messiah, and they've had followers, but they've always, it's always sort of fallen off. They've, they've died, right? And their followers have disbanded. And Gamaliel says, just wait it out and see what happens, lest you be found to be opposing God, right? Which is, and it's kind of striking in that same way. And the realization that she has is that the church, you know, has this continuity over history, which is, which is kind of unavoidable. You can't you can't mistake that. It's there, right? Um, well, and now, I mean, of course, whether she's talking about the Roman Catholic Church or whether we're talking about the, the, the Church Universal, um, that's another, another discussion. But nonetheless, this continuity is so, um, is so striking. Great. Okay. Were there... Well, I, I thought I saw another hand at some point. Barbara? Well, they really covered it. Okay. What I found so much in
1: this section was how she's struggling with what she's believed... Whole life, yes. And now she she does believe this other, but she can't resolve that. Well, how can she be? She still wants woman's rights. Right. She still wants right. Her, but you can't. That's a baby.
0: Yes. <laughs> and yes. So it's it's just interesting how she's struggling with herself. Yeah. Huh? Nancy. Yeah.
2: This is not as significant I would say, as you are talking about. But also, when I was reading it, about, I was thinking, how do you want to admit that her wonderful position pro choice was really pretty grungy underneath? Right. And I mean, we all kind of have that tendency. A lot of people, well, they don't want to know how cows are slaughtered. They like to eat a hamburger, but they don't want to know that. Yes. Or, you know, we don't want to, we're happy to get the tennis shoes, but then we find out that they're made by a bunch of little kids, you know, locked up in some dark room. Right. I mean, there's so many things like that where. When we find out what lies behind something which we think is really great, we're kind of appalled.
0: Right. Absolutely. Uh, Now this is all this is all segues perfectly. I'm so thankful. (laughs) Segues perfectly into what I prepared for this morning. So. Let's, let's go with this. If you, have, if you have other things you want to talk about, other questions, other comments, feel free to bring them up and we will we'll go with them. But I want to, let's go with what's on the page for right now. So the, so the paragraph that, paragraphs that really struck me, the one, the one at the end on page 172, that's my last quotation on the first page there, but I was also very struck on page 162 and I wrote it down for you here. This is how she describes her experience. Uh, she says, My mind was split in two by the increasing disconnect between my intellect which said that something terrible was happening to women and their children, and my emotions, which said that I'd still fight and die to defend it. Now, it's interesting, of course, um, for a lot of people, the, where the emotion and the intellect line up is different. So, like, for me, the, my emotions are for the babies, and my, you know, my min- intellect might say something about human rights, you know, women's rights, and so forth. But in her case, it's switched, right? Her emotions are for women's rights. Her intellect says something about this is a baby, Right? Uh, Within me, there was a conviction with roots a mile deep. Ah, This language is perfect imagery for original sin, right? Roots a mile deep that said to oppose abortion would be unfair to women in the direst sense of the word. Normally, I would have stepped through the problem until I could be confident I was being intellectually honest. But not here. I was fully aware that I was more determined to remain pro-choice than I was to take an honest look at who was and who wasn't human. I didn't like it but I didn't know what to do about it, okay? So the, the, this awareness of this dichotomy, of this combat between the intellect and the emotions, um, is, is something I think that we're, we all experience. Whether, whether you're a Christian or not, you come to terms with this at some point. You, you, have, you face these conflicts where you say, well, wait a minute, I realize I'm being hypocritical, right? Um, but what you do with that realization sort of defines you. What do you, do you sort of cover it up, or do you wrestle with it, or how do you resolve that? Well, um, I wanted to share with you, I went, I went in April to a conference in New York with some friends of mine from, from the seminary, and it was a conference uh, run by Mockingbird. It's this organization um, based in Manhattan, and they had a conference, and they invited a, a wide range of speakers. Um, one of the speakers, one of the speakers was the cartoonist for the New Yorker, who is like he uh, he has, writes, draws always satirical cartoons, especially about Christianity. But he, he, he nails everybody equally. But, uh, but it was very interesting to hear him give his perspective. It's a Christian organization, Mockingbird. Um, the other speaker that they invited is a fellow named Jonathan Haidt. Um, I have his name here on the page. Uh, he is a, uh, a professor at NYU, a moral psychologist. So the, the questions that he tries to answer, he's an atheist also, the questions that he tries to answer are questions about how Morality develops in people in terms in evolutionary terms. He says where do these instincts to be moral come from? And he, he holds a position which says that it's called the Moral intuitionists model. So he says people don't enter the world as blank slates and they're it's not like that They're not just formed based on you know um, Whatever happens to them, but they, they come into the world with certain instincts uh, which and he goes on and describes it even further what he thinks about morality based on his research. And the reason they invited him to this conference is because what he says about morality um, lines up very strikingly with Christian anthropology, what we say as Christians about humans, about the human will and about the, the way that we make choices and the, and the things that we decide are good and bad. Uh, so it's very interesting. Um, let, let's turn the page here. This is a section from his book, and it gives us sort of a... An, uh, an entrance into what he's describing and how he's thinking about things. Notice especially the bold, the bold words there. This is, this is one of the chief conclusions that he comes to, and we'll flesh this out a little bit. But let me read this to you. On February 3rd, 2007, shortly before lunch, I discovered I was a chronic liar. I was at home writing a review article on moral psychology. My wife, Jane, walked by my desk. In passing, she asked me not to leave dirty dishes on the counter where she prepared our baby's food. Her request was polite, but its tone added a postscript, as I've asked you a hundred times before. My mouth started moving before hers had stopped. Words came out. Those words linked themselves up to say something about the baby having woken up at the same time that our elderly dog barked to ask for a walk, and I'm sorry, but I just put my breakfast dishes down wherever I could. In my family, caring for a hungry baby and an incontinent dog is a surefire case, so I was acquitted. Jane left the room and I continued working, I was writing about the three basic principles of moral psychology. The first principle is intuitions come first, strategic reasoning second. That's a six word summary of the social intuitionist's model. So there I was at my desk writing about how people automatically fabricate justifications of their gut feelings when suddenly I realized that I had just done the same thing with my wife. I disliked being criticized and I had felt a flash of negativity by the time Jane had gotten to her third word can you not? Even before I knew why she was criticizing me, I knew I disagreed with her because intuitions come first. The instant I knew the content of the criticism, leave dirty dishes on the, my inner lawyer went to work searching for an excuse, strategic reasoning second. It's true that I had eaten breakfast, given Max his first bottle, and let Andy Andy out for his first walk, but these events had all happened at separate times. Only when my wife criticized me did I merge them into a composite image of a harried father with too few hands, and I created this fabrication by the time she had completed her one sentence criticism, counter where I make the baby food. I then lied so quickly and so convincingly that my wife and I both believed me. I had long teased my wife for altering stories to make them more dramatic when she told them to friends, but it took 20 years of studying moral psychology to see that I altered, them, that I altered my stories too. I finally understood, not just cerebrally, but intuitively and with an open heart, the admonitions of sages from so many eras and cultures warning us against self-righteousness. I've already quoted Jesus, and what he quoted in the introduction was Jesus in Matthew 7. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Okay. So, it's a great anecdote, and it's an engaging story, and he's a, he's a great writer and a great speaker, and I'm going to show you a clip of him speaking, but let's just, let's just talk about this for a little bit. Does this make sense, what he's describing here? Have you all had this experience, or recognize that this is how you, uh, that, you that you justify yourself frequently this way, right? Um, so, the reason why this is helpful, so it's helpful for him as a moral psychologist, because um, it, it allows him to understand uh, cultural norms, cultural uh, mores and the ways we, way, way cultures decide what's right and wrong. It's helpful for us because it's evidence, it's proof that humans are corrupt, right? And that our corruption is, uh, first of all, directed inward. So we, we're always looking to elevate ourselves and justify ourselves. So he instead, you know, in fact, in this case, he shows... He's less concerned about like the, 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 uh, the sanitary state of his kitchen where his baby's food is prepared. He's less concerned about that than he is concerned about being right, not being wrong, not being subject to criticism, right? Um, and that is, that's a, that's a perfect description of, of what original sin does to us. Um, and we do this all the time on sort of a, a horizontal level among each other, especially, you know, in families. We do this all the time. But we also do it before God, which is where it's really a problem, right? Because we say to God, well, you know, you told me to do this, but I had all these things, and that's why so I didn't do it. Or you didn't really mean that, which is what, you know, Eve decided, right? Okay, any questions about that? Does that make sense? I want to I wanna show you this clip. I find him to be a very engaging speaker. Um, if you get bored, start coughing and sneezing. <laughs> it's about six minutes long, so it'll be over... It'll be over before too long, but he presents, he presents his argument and gives some research, which I think is very helpful. Again, it's helpful to have, it's helpful in a, in a, uh, as Christians to have these sorts of things in our back pockets to show, to know that, uh, that this is, a, that the way the Bible describes the world, the way that God talks about humanity, the way that we understand the fall into sin is actually the way it works, and that you can see it if we're honest, if we're sort of honest about what we perceive around us, okay? So let's do this. His book is called *The Righteous Mind*, or one of his books is called *The Righteous Mind*. Um, and there's a link to this, the link to this video is on that second page. So if you want to want to watch the whole thing, this is the this is the talk he gave at the conference in New York. He also has uh, a number of TED talks. If you like TED talks, he, said he, was an atheist also. he is an atheist, right? Yeah. So I mean, it, it he's a very open-minded atheist. I'll, so I'll give him that.
3: In Christianity, the idea of division between good and evil. Uh, so this is the book. These are the three principles which, uh, which David referred to. And so I'll just briefly... I'll probably just do the first two because those are the ones that I think we can really uh, talk the most about, but we'll see. So this first one, which David already mentioned, um, the way to think about this is that the the uh, the basic, the most basic truth in, in psychology that sages in every culture have come up with is that the mind is divided into parts that sometimes conflict. And Plato... Uh, conceived of this as a charioteer, reason, who uh, can master the passions—the dumb and the smart and the noble passions—and this is uh, what we should strive for: is mastery over these passions. But I came to see, in graduate school, and I was studying moral psychology. I came to see that David Hume actually is a much better psychologist. David Hume, who quite famously said that reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. Um, this just turns out to be true, and I cover all the, the research showing that in my, in my book. Uh, but rather than conceiving of reason as a butler or a servant like that, I think the best way is as a press secretary, and that you saw that again in the quote that David read. Um, this is Jay Carney, Obama's press secretary. He's very smart. But his goal is not to find the truth. His goal is to justify whatever the position of the administration is. That's what he does. I'll just very briefly uh, give you uh, some concepts that I find so useful. And I hope I can inject this into your discussions in your remaining time together and see if you can try to use these phrases at some point before you leave New York. It turns out that when we want to believe something, you know, we start off, if somebody tells you something, it could be something about politics, it could be something about the Bible, you have this instant flash of either liking it or disliking it. You find yourself leaning towards it or away from it. If you are leaning towards it, if you like it, you ask yourself, can I believe it? And then you send reasoning out on a search for some supporting evidence. And if reasoning finds even a single piece of supporting evidence, a single justification, you stop thinking. What we don't do is say, well, on balance, is it true? No, we say, can I believe it? Uh, here's an article I read yesterday. Yes, I can believe it. Done. But if you find yourself leaning away from it, if it's something about Obama and you don't like Obama, let's say, or whatever, vice versa, then um, something, something good about Obama and you don't like Obama, then you would say, must I believe it? Am I forced to believe it? Or can I find any reason to doubt this thing? For example, maybe the credibility of this guy who said it, or, uh, or whatever. You say, must I believe it? And then you go looking for uh, kind of an escape hatch, and you always find one, because we're very, very smart. Reality is ambiguous, and so we can always find a reason to believe something or not to believe it. So here's one example, uh, an experiment showing this. In one experiment, uh, st- uh, subjects come into the lab, there are students in a psychology class, and they're given an article to evaluate, what do you think about the methods of this study? And it's a study that shows a relationship between caffeine consumption and breast cancer. And then you're supposed to say, well, what do you think about the methods? Who do you think finds flaws in the methods of that study? Coffee drinkers. All coffee drinkers? Female coffee drinkers suddenly get hypercritical, but the sample size is only 800, and they didn't control for this and that, because female coffee drinkers look at a scientific study and they say, must I believe it? And then they find reasons why they don't have to believe it. But everybody else doesn't start with that. They say, oh, okay, here's a scientific, oh, I guess guess caffeine causes breast cancer, okay. Um, uh, In another study, subjects come into the lab, they're paid, let's say a nickel, every time they correctly spot Uh, A letter that flashes up on a screen. So, okay, what's that? What did I just flash up? Anyone notice? Okay, but what if you were paid to spot numbers? A nickel every time you spot a number, what's that? Okay, so reality is ambiguous. People are not crazy. Nobody thinks that's a Z or a T. But if you're paid to spot letters, you see it as a B. If you're paid to spot numbers, you see it as a 13. Okay, so reality is ambiguous and we find the evidence out there in the ambiguous world to support what we believe. And once I have justifications, I know I'm right. And if you disagree with me, then you are either stupid or disingenuous. And the common move you'll see is people will say, I know you're not stupid, so you must be disingenuous. And this is part of the acceleration of righteousness. This is why we are all so convinced that we're right. And the other side is either stupid or evil. So that's, um, let me just link this uh, briefly. So this model is wrong. I just want to just link it briefly to the sorts of concerns that you guys have already raised. This is, uh, David wrote this wonderful blog post. Uh, I'm, boy, you can't ask for a better title than this. How do I love Jonathan Haidt? Let me count the ways. So, way number two. David said was that height subordinates reason to emotion, uh, which approximates what Martin Luther called the bondage of the will. It would be hard to deny the congruence between the righteous mind and Ashley Null's formulation, uh, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. That's exactly right. That's exactly the way human psychology works. And that was the point of my first book, The Happiness Hypothesis, that most of the great truths in psychology have been discovered by sages east and west. So typically religious thinkers, uh, but thinkers of all sorts, have discovered this basic psychology. I mean, the ancients were just horrible at chemistry and physics. There really is no reason to read them for chemistry and physics, but boy, did they get psychology. And I think Christianity and Buddhism in particular are two fonts of enormous wisdom into the nature of the psyche that's all i'll say about the first one and again i hope as you have your discussions and as you see yourself probably there's a lot of agreement here on on uh, basic uh sort of the moral matrix the way the world works your community but as you see yourself interacting with those outside just catch yourself asking must i believe it and can i believe it and and try to it's a a way to help school yourself in becoming less righteous i hope less self-righteous i should say
0: okay so did that that all make sense To make a compelling argument, I mean, the research is, I think, so striking. That study with the caffeine, the link between caffeine and breast cancer. I mean, you you see it coming a mile away, but you don't want to think that you would ever be, you know, subject to that kind of, you know, poor reasoning. Okay. So what I want to do is I want to think a little bit about uh, about the Bible now. Let's reflect on the Bible um, and how this relates to what God says. Uh, especially in, some, in, in the stories of the Bible. So can you think of any stories, any biblical stories, uh, where we find out that you know, that somebody is making a judgment based on, based on their gut instinct um, and, and then they're presented with, with reasoning to the opposite and they, they sort of fight against that. Can you think of any, any examples? Carol? Um, the, the blind
2: man. The blind man. Uh, disciples asking Jesus...
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, John 9. That's great. It's a, you, you, that's how the story goes. Um, the the story actually, so it's less about the blind man. The story is less about the blind man than it is about the disciples and the, the teachers. So the story begins, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciple asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Right? So uh, and this is this is another sort of uh, important aspect of our anthropology is that of the way we are as humans we we tend to assume that consequences follow actions right that there's a that there's a, a linear cause and effect in the world it's not always true and it's especially not true when we're trying to make judgments about who sinned who did right who did wrong right because of course we're very bad at knowing what's right and what's wrong i, I there's a great i listened to a radio program about blame um, and in the course of the program, a fellow made an argument um, for a, a very impersonal system of justice in the world. So he said, he said you know, if you, if you wanted to stop, if you wanted to prevent crimes from being committed again, if you wanted to prevent people, criminals, from committing the same crime again, you could ask people with experience. You could say, you know, detectives and police officers, is this guy likely to commit the crime again? They have all kinds of experience with criminals, they know how they are. You ask him that question, um, 50% of the time, he'll be right, okay? 50% of the time. Which, is, I mean, that's not it's not terrible, 50% of the time. You could make a really impartial system, however. You could consider all of these different factors. You could you could weigh and measure things and, um, you know, like, it, uh, you know, socioeconomic things, his history. And you could come up with a system. Like, you can do this. It's actually possible where 75% of the time, you'll be right, right? You run the numbers, and 75% of the time, you, you're right about whether or not they're going to commit the crime again. Well, now, of course, we have all kinds of inhibitions about that, about just plugging it into the system because um, then there's no personal agent. There's no room for mercy. There's no room for a judge to say, yes, they're likely to commit this crime again, but here's why I think that we should let them go. Well, the, the, the example, the evidence that the guy gave for how bad we are at making judgments is not just the 50%, but that the fact that when you, uh, when you have a criminal, somebody who's guilty of a crime before a jury, if that person is good-looking, the jury gives them a, le- a lesser sentence, right? right? So it has nothing to do with their guilt. It has nothing to do with whether they're likely to commit the crime again. They're judging, they're judging whether or not that person is guilty based on whether or not they're good-looking, right? And, this, and these are people who are selected to be impartial. So they're really bad at it, and, and we all are really bad at it, right? I don't know how I got there. How did I get that, to that story? <laughs> We're bad at making judgments.
3: What did you say, Carol?
0: Oh, John 9. That's right. Um, the blind man. I'm sorry. I, uh, I got a lot of things floating around. And got to tie them down. Um, so, when it, especially when it comes to making judgments about whether somebody has sinned or not. Now, and then I think that there's another great uh, connection to the story, uh, Jennifer's story, right? You remember she is sitting on the couch um, and her leg is in pain and she, can't, she's, she doesn't want to look at the mantle because what's on the mantle, do you remember? A picture of uh, was her grandmother. grandmother, yeah. So there had been this terrible accident, and her grandmother's mother died, and her grandmother, who had an, had another son, yeah, her first son died, and she says, what does she say about that? Some, how can and she gets mad at God, right? Very last page of that section one sixty eight. Um, page 168, this is the top paragraph is where she articulates it. She says, I shook my head violently as if I could expel the images from my brain if I just put enough effort into it. Everything I had read that day about redemption and victory in the midst of suffering was demolished by my outrage, like trees flattened by the force of a volcano. If God had appeared to me in the flesh, I probably would have slugged him. You are supposed to be good. You're supposed to be love itself, and you let kids burn to death. What in the... are you going to be beep, is that. I shouted out loud, my eyes brimming with tears. You're, not, you're supposed to be good. Okay, so she's, she's objecting to the, the death of this child because she supposes it's inju- unjust, that, that, that this child dies. Um, and this is one of the really hard things about, about Christianity and about accepting the Christian anthropology and, and original sin. Because what do we say about kids? Well, that's, that's, that's our intuition, right? It's to say that kids are, in, are innocent. But what does the Bible say about kids? They're, they're born sinful, right? And what are the wages of sin? Death, right? So it's a... Now, this is a very hard thing to say, right? To say a child deserves death. Um, I don't recommend trying to say that. It's, no. And it's not... And, and also, it, this is, again, it's, it's because, not because of anything... Um, it's not because, the, you know, it's not when Nathaniel doesn't eat his supper that he deserves death, Right? He doesn't need his supper because he's a sinner. And going back to the beginning, sin is, is, is the consequences of sin are death. All right? So, when it comes to making judgments about, about innocence and guilt and, and merit, who deserves what, we're, again, we're, we're very bad at it. We're bad at making those judgments. Okay? Does that all make sense? Any questions? Mary... Right. This is great. There's you. You've said a, a few things that are, that that have prompted me, and I don't want to forget. So 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 the first thing is um, this. Of course, you know this. Of course, is why it, uh, it's a good observation to make that it's, that it's much more difficult to be a Christian as an as an adult or as as an as an agent, you know, as a person who can make. Bad decisions. It's much more difficult to be a Christian than it is for a little child, right? This is part of the reason why we uh, we want to give the Lord's Supper to to little kids because um, if we can if we can give them all the help we can while they're young, then as they get older and things get more difficult, they won't be helpless, right? But in in a very real sense, um, it's it's there. There is uh, we can talk about innocence in a very real sense because. Um, the opportunity hasn't presented itself. They haven't been as corrupted by the world and influences uh, in the world. Um, but again, the very, the very difficult thing to say is that without the grace of God, without the work of the Holy Spirit, without Jesus, you know, all are lost, right? Even the youngest and the, and, and, and the frailest and the feeblest, right? Um, which makes us very thankful then when we, have, we can put our confidence in the work that Jesus does, even that we can't see. Right, the work that he does, even in the womb. Right. The other thing, now I've forgotten it. I wrote it down. Let me see. I'll, I'll, I'll remember it if I see my notes. Oh yes. Okay. Um, we talk about suffering all the time, um, as a, you know, as, as sort of as sort of curses, and um, we think about blessings and sort of the the withholding of blessings. So this, a story that comes to mind is. Uh, I just did it with a high schooler, so it's fresh on my mind. Um, the, we read, I read the reading from 1 Samuel this morning in the back chapel. Hannah's Prayer. Okay, you know the story of Hannah and Samuel, right? So Hannah well, uh, was barren. And in fact, the text says something so striking. It says, God closed her womb, right? It wasn't just, it wasn't just this sort of happened, but God was the one who had done it. She was barren. Um, this relates also to, the discussion two weeks ago about about lamenting. So God closed her womb, but she still prayed to God for this blessing, okay? Now, um, we normally say, well, you know, we'd say something like, well, kids are a blessing, but um, what is the opposite of a blessing? A curse, right? So you'd say, well, if you, you know, no kids are a curse. It's not true because as as Christians, in view of the work of Jesus, there are no curses, right Jesus became a curse for us so curses the the withholding of blessings is not a curse it, it's a cross okay it works for our good and in and in fact um, it's a blessing in another way okay so you know a, like you described it so well as a as a quadri, you know a quadriplegic who has who is who's with you know doesn't have the blessings of mobility right you could say it's a curse well you know for, for somebody who's worked on by the Holy Spirit, somebody who Jesus, you know, who, who Jesus loves, it's, there are no curses. Um, and there are crosses that we struggle with. Suffering is indeed a cross. But what do we say about the cross? It's where our victory is, right? So we, we, we have to, like, she described it very well. Jennifer did about, uh, uh, I don't remember which pope it was, talking about the, the salvific nature of suffering, right? So you, you turn everything back to the cross and you say, well, their suffering resulted in my salvation, the salvation of the whole world, right? How much more will this suffering, this cross, be beneficial for me, okay? And that's, that's where our faith is tested, and that's where our faith is strengthened, okay? It's, it's difficult, um, and that's why we return always to the cross. That's why we return always to the things that we know strengthen us. Okay, I've gone very far afield. This was all because of Carol's John chapter 9. Are there other stories? Oh, any questions? Any questions? Comments? Anything else you want to say at this point? Yes, Lindsay. Can you link that back to
2: John
0: Can you? Do you, you have something in mind? Okay. <laughs> can, can we link this back to Jonathan Haidt? Okay. Uh, you know, it, it, you can in this way. Um... <laughs> The model that he has of of intuitions coming first, rational thinking coming second, justifying justifying something coming second, plays plays true in all these cases. So um, we know we know because we read the Bible that suffering is for our good, right? But our instinct says suffering can only ever be bad for me, right? Suffering can only ever be bad for me, Um, and it's a great example of of how we can understand what's at play. The, the conflict that Paul describes, you know this, he describes this in Romans chapter 6, I think, um, or 7. So I find it to be a law that, just as Romans 7, um, Romans 7, let's start at 16 now, or 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do, I do not. The evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Okay? So, there you have this picture um, of what he wants to do and what he does of his, you know, his emotions, his passions, wanting to do something in, or in this case, however you want to line it up. There's this combat, this internal combat, right? Now, this is another great thing to, to keep in mind in terms of Christian teaching, how we understand what happens in conversion. When the Holy Spirit goes to work on you, when... Jesus produces faith in you, and you trust in Jesus, and you receive his gifts. Uh, he has begun the work of giving you a new will, okay? So that now you can say, I delight in your law. I want to do what God wants me to do. Um, without the Holy Spirit, that's impossible. In fact, without the Holy Spirit, we're at odds with God. We're enemies of God. We don't want what he wants. We want only, we want only our own gain. Well, we still have that with us when we're Christians, but we have this as well, that that he's begun a good work in us that he'll bring to completion, right? That we're, he's begun the work of giving us a new will so that someday this conflict between emotions and intellect, this conflict between... Uh, so that, I, I don't know if you caught that phrase, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. I mean, that is it's a great paradigm for understanding how we do things. So Jesus is changing what our heart loves so that we don't have to justify wicked things anymore. So we can justify, so that so that he can justify us. All right, um, he's changing what our heart loves, and that's it's a it's a it's a tension that we experience in life because we still find ourselves not loving the things that we ought to love, and that's that's when that's when repentance and uh, and trusting in Jesus again comes to play. The sto- I think often of the story of David, Second Samuel. Um, you know he he looks he sees Bathsheba, he conspires to kill Uriah, the Hittite. It's terrible, right? It's awful, and he somehow convinces himself that it wasn't so bad. So that Nathan has to come and trap him, right? Because because I mean even David, a man after God's own heart, David, the the type of Christ, right? He's a, he's a forerunner of Christ. Um, even David has this. This conflict so that he, what his heart has loved, his will chosen, his mind justified, right? So Nathan comes along and he has to tell him this parable. Now this is the mark, though, of righteousness. Because how does David respond? Let's, uh, let's look at this. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Everybody have a Bible? Maybe not. Yes? If you don't have one, that's okay. I'll read it. So you can, and I'll try and read slower so you can follow it. Second Samuel, chapter 12. If you have a page number in the Red Bibles, go ahead. 254? 254. 254. Is, Is Second Samuel? Okay. Second Samuel. Second Samuel, chapter 12. Yeah. 263. 263. Okay. Um, here's how the chapter begins. "'The Lord sent Nathan to David. "'He came to him and said to him, "'There were two men in a certain city, "'the one rich and the other poor.'" Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. So that's, that's the mark of righteousness. That's the mark of the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? When you're confronted with your sin, your, uh, your, your heart loving the wrong things, when you're confronted with that and you say, I have sinned in the eyes of the Lord. We see this all the time. This is, in fact, the the whole the whole book of First Samuel is about the difference between David and Saul. Um, so Saul sins over and over again, and each time he says, "I did." Uh, yeah, you said that, but here's what I here's what I was thinking. Right? Um, it's I mean it's it's almost comedic. It's tragic in the end because the spirit of the Lord was on, on Saul, and then the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and went to David. Okay. Um, so keep this in mind. This is why I think Jonathan Haidt is so helpful and why it's helpful to understand this model. Intuitions come first. Uh, strategic reasoning comes second. We, uh, we look for a reason to believe what we want and we look for a reason to disbelieve what we don't want. Um, the heart, what the heart chooses, the will. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. If you think, if you, if you understand that that's the way you work, um, then it helps you, and this is the way the Bible talks about you as well, then it helps you to be... Um, not as surprised when you find out you've made bad decisions, right? And you're less, and, and then you, and, then, and this is where faith, so there's, so there's two parts to repentance contrition, recognizing your sin, and believing the words that follow. The Lord has also put away your sin, okay? I've been going on and on. Do you have any questions? Anything else you want to talk about? Krista! <clears throat>
1: but um, if you don't believe, then you um, would never um, uh,
0: excuse or forgive, no? Right. So, um, here's a couple of things right off the bat. Jesus has, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross forgives all sins, okay? Um, somebody who doesn't believe basically says, I don't want my sins forgiven, right? I'd rather hang on to them. He says to Nathan, um, instead of saying, "I have sinned against the Lord," he says, "No, I did what was right in my eyes." Rationalizes it. Yep. Right. So, and and in that case, he hangs on to his sins for himself. He says, "No, I want." This is what Saul did. He said, "No, I want. I want these. I don't. I don't need you to forgive them." Right. And that's what that's what that's what condemns to hell. But is it
1: self-righteousness?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yep. And, And exactly. Exactly. So the. So Jonathan Haidt talking about self-righteousness is another... The, the, here's the other great way to think about it. So if all of these efforts to, to justify um, your intuitions, to justify what your heart loves, though, those are efforts at self-righteousness. For a Christian, the righteousness doesn't have anything to do with you. Right? Your righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus. Okay? Because it's obvious you don't have anything to contribute. Right? Then that's what this that's what the whole exercise of repentance is all about. Understanding that you've got nothing to nothing to give to God, that you can't justify yourself, that you make that you've that you've sinned against him, and clinging to the righteousness that is that is Jesus' righteousness. Okay. Elizabeth. Go ahead. <laughs> I would be curious too. I was so shocked when she gave you know quotes about the number of divorces. Right. Yeah. Isn't it? Can't us that the whatever whatever 1968. Right. Yeah. So so here's a couple of things to think about. I it there's a lot of history and a lot of, and a lot of uh, political and social baggage that goes along with the discussion, which I think is helpful to have in mind. So if you take a step way, way back, um, the whole the, the discussion about contraception in America begins in the 19th century. Um, there, there was a, there's, you know, there's a strong sort of libertine movement and that's opposed by a, a, a Victorian movement. And there's a fellow, I don't know if you know his name, Comstock. He worked for the Postal Service or was concerned with the Postal Service, and, and the Comstock Act was passed, which said uh, it's illegal to distribute any information about contraception and it's, and it's, and it's illegal, it, it, using the Postal Service. So you can't do it in the Postal Service. And the idea was he was afraid. So the, so the great benefit of contraception at that time was it, it made prostitution a viable trade, right? So he said, well, we're going to solve the problem by... By stamping out contraception. Okay, so that's in the nineteenth the century. Well, beginning of the twentieth century, things really come to a head with um, you know with, with uh, you know sort of radical feminism, um, and again you know a sort of a free love kind of a mentality, um, and it became it became a matter of uh, of privacy. So that so in nineteen sixty nine, the case Griswold versus whoever. Um, they decided that contraception should be legal. It, had, it was outlawed for for a long time. They should, it should be legal because not because of any not because of the merits either for or against contraception, but because the the uh, the case the court decided that there's a constitutional right to privacy that the that the government can't inject its its thoughts into privacy, which then again <laughs> plays out in like Roe v. Wade. Same 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 thing. Privacy is at stake there. Okay, so so. There's all of that baggage at play. Now, she makes some interesting remarks and, and, and noteworthy remarks about the, how the Roman Catholic Church has never swayed on their position. And I think it's helpful to know why the Roman Catholic Church has such a staunch, unchanging position. Um, first, for, for one thing, they look to, uh, to ancient church writers who, have talked about, who talked about contraception in, in kind of somewhat vague terms. Um, but their, their, main argument, their chief argument is a, is an argument from natural law and an appeal to the natural order. So they say, God has ordered things in a certain way and to deviate from that order is to sin against God. Whether or not, whether or not scripture talks about it, to, to manipulate God's order, the natural order of things is to, to sin against God. So in fact, um, Natural family planning, which is allowed by, under Roman Catholic teaching, that's not a permanent, you can't do that forever, right? They say, that you, that's a temporary solution, but you're, you're, even in doing that, you're deviating from the natural order of things, okay? Um, so that argument relies on the idea that, um, that, that having sex is tied inextricably from, with, with having babies, right? That there's no other purpose. Okay, and that is that's sort of the big question. Um, I think it's I think it's evident. Um, the Lutheran Church is notably silent on these things. Okay, we the things that the Lutheran Church says here. The, here are the important things, very important things that the Lutheran Church says about contraception. We say one, any contraception which results in an abortion is murder. Okay, and it's very very important to. Uh, to know what's what's at play in contraception, because the literature and publicity about contraception is often deceptive. Okay, that and that's a, that's you know that's that's a, that's a, something that is, is can be very disconcerting, um, and it and it's not you know um, it's it's a it's a struggle that we we all we always face in sort of learning about things because you find out you know you find out things you don't you don't want to know and it's tricky um, and it's troubling. Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's, that's clear. Um, of course, and it, the, every discussion of this nature, every discussion, you know, for instance, of abortion, you know, it, it's really a pastoral issue. It's a pastoral conversation. Um, we can say, you know, we can say as a church, yes, um, murdering is, is sinful, but that's not the final word, right? That's not the last thing we say, especially as pastors. Um, pastoral care goes be, continues beyond the word of the law, right? So, there is forgiveness. And there is life. And there is hope for, um, for children, right? That, all of those things. So, if I, if I can leave you with one thing I want to... One last thing is... Or one thing to carry away is that um, it often feels like the Roman Catholic position can be very cold and sterile. That's a, a poor choice of a word. Cold and clinical. Um, and... Uh, it, it, in the sense that um, it, there's no leeway. There's no, there's no room for pastoral discretion. And I'm not saying that pastoral discretion says that something which is wrong is right. But pastoral discretion, pastoral care, this is why you have pastors, so that we can, um, so that we can make decisions, help make decisions, help give you information which um, is informed by God's Word, which isn't just, here's the law, and you, you follow it or else, right? Because most things, now, and here, here's, here's the reason why that's important. Um, we learn in the gospel that uh, when, the, when the Pharisees come and ask Jesus about divorce, he says, um, Moses allowed it because of your hard-heartedness. Right? Um, and then Jesus says, you know, a variety of things about divorce. Well, the reality of the world is like this. People are hard-hearted and the natural order of things has been disrupted. Things don't work the way God intends them to work, right? We see this all the time. Things don't work the way God intends them to work. Um, people are all a big mess, right? <laughs> and, um, and what we do as Christians is try and, try and right the ship as much as we can, but it doesn't always look, it still won't look the way that it's supposed to, okay? Maybe that's the best thing I can say about, about the conversation. Does that does that give you some information, some insights, Elizabeth? Is that helpful, or have I left you have I left you wanting more? we
1: yeah. talk.
0: I know, I know.
1: Well, think about I think about when I was growing up getting contraception, was so it was like so difficult. Yeah. I mean, I think about for a boy to get know, it was like an embarrassing thing. Now they're in every bathroom.
0: And right. Experiment. Yeah. And
1: Restaurant. I mean, so it's really interesting that even in our children's minds, mm-hmm. it'd be like, "Oh, it's there. It's, it's meant for me to be able to have sex easily." Yeah. Yep, yeah. exactly. It's kind of yeah. To, it's so similar to how the how the living together. Are, it's like it all kind of, you know, that's completely not the natural. Yeah. Order. Yeah, it's completely That's right. My
0: <laughs> exactly. They're like, "Oh, of course it's Of course. That's right.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: I go, well, like,
2: most times you're going to try it out and you're not going to like each other some days. So yes. You're
0: jump yep. Yeah. Absolutely. No, that's, that's great. That's exactly right. Pat, go ahead.
1: Yeah, right. And I guess I can
0: see where contraception as an answer came in. Sure, sure, yeah. So, you know, whether it's right,
1: and I certainly mean not with a
0: portion, but I mean just the idea of That's not an easy answer. You no, know. you're right. Yeah. Right, which is, why, which is why, if you haven't noticed, I'm not saying anything. Yeah. Go ahead, Nancy. It seems to
2: me there's kind of a logical flaw in appealing to natural law because if it's wrong, contraception is wrong, what about all
0: medicines? Right, exactly. Yep, that, it, precisely. So we manipulate the natural order all the time. Um, the thing doesn't, the, the, as far as I can tell, the argument doesn't really hold a lot of water. Right? Yeah. Is there a hand over here? Uh, I was just going to say I've, have you ever read Greekonomics?
1: Yes. There's a section in economics where they talk about abortion in Cuba. Right. I mean, China, too. And yeah. yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. Uh,
1: if, you, if you go with the argument of contraception as a socioeconomic bonus, right. then you're going to wind up with a lot of debt.
0: Yeah. Krista?
1: Um, I only want to say, um, Luther never never said something about abortion. And uh, he, um, at, at that time, it was defined when is a is a um, a baby a human being, and uh, it was a kind of, you would say, in four or six months. Hmm. You know, these, these kind of uh, um, uh, um, uh, conception and uh, uh, that has, has changed
0: too. Yeah, I I'm I'm not really familiar with um. With you know a lot of what Luther says about it, but he, but one thing to note is that. Um, you know, not long ago, you know, in, in relatively recent history, you know, we had no idea how things worked, right? We just had just had very little idea how things worked, um, but the church has always, going back to going back to the to very ancient times, to like the very the very early church, um, has taken a stand over against pagan culture, saying um, abortion is is wrong, right? It's it's terminating a life when. When, when God is, you know, giving life as a gift, um, and so, and, and so, you know, for 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 folks like Luther, it wasn't really much. It wasn't really much of a question in some sense, um, because and, and likewise for the Roman Catholic Church, they say, of course, it's wrong. Right? Um, we've always we've always said it's wrong. Yeah,
1: but it was it was uh, uh, when when uh, has a baby a soul.
0: Sure. Yeah, and, and there's all kinds... yeah, there the, the, the theologians and philosophers go into all kinds of <laughs> all kinds of different spheres when they when they ask that question, right? Yeah. Okay, we'd better wrap it up here. Uh, thank you very much. Good discussion. Let's conclude with the Lord's Prayer. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done